Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be a part of the show, you can give me a call on the listener hotline. That number is 303-832-0217. Imagine waking up to this. A bill from Uber for a ride that they said cost $35,000, <laughs> or in this case, British pounds. Uh, see, the problem was the driver for the 15-minute Uber trip from the city of Manchester set the destination accidentally for Australia. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you can't drive to Australia from anywhere, including England. That would be quite the, quite unless you're driving Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> it's already a boat and flying car. You're not driving to Australia. So how does it even work that way? Anyway, Oliver Kaplan had just finished a shift at work. He decided to order an Uber ride, go meet some friends over f- at a local pub for a drink, and a Uber picked him up to take him about the four miles over to the pub. Well, the ride should have cost just about 10 British pounds, but the next morning, he looked at the message from Uber saying that he had insufficient funds in his banking account as the charge for the ride was billed for over 35,000 pounds. Oliver quickly contacted Uber's customer service, as I think any of us would, uh, through the app to find out uh, about that ludicrous charge. He says they were initially stumped, but after doing a little digging... The worker said they had found the reason, saying the bill was so high because somehow the drop-off location for the trip had been set to Australia. Now, I, I've taken several Uber rides, and, and usually you can follow along on the app with uh, your ride from your pickup location to your destination. Don't you think that guy, maybe he just wasn't paying attention, and he just ordered the thing, and he just went. And, he, and, he expect, and sometimes, well, at least for me, you can see that the driver is using the, the app, and has the destination programmed in there, and, and it gives you the turn-by-turn directions. Now, you don't always need that, and, and if you're familiar with a city or town, you, you just sometimes will deviate from the turn-by-turn directions because you, you just know it from being there and from living there, right? But how did neither of them know that the location for the destination had been set for Australia? How do you even tell? I mean, what was, that, what was the name of the bar? Was it Australia? The name of the bar? Well, Uber then obviously adjusted the fare to the real amount, which was £10.73. Pence. Uber said, as soon as the issue was raised on Oliver's account, we immediately corrected the fare. We're very sorry for, an incon- for any inconvenience caused. What they should have done was cancel the fare altogether and give that guy a free ride. I'm surprised that the driver's GPS just didn't flag any of this as a problem and that Uber just didn't say, you know what, this is a funny mistake and we should not, and it shouldn't have come to this, and guess what, Uh, we're just going to give you the free ride. Here's 10 bucks. Enjoy. Um, I I don't get it. I just don't get it. There's a lot of unanswered questions with this story, and I demand answers. Anyway, they <laughs> so I'm back from a five-day, 700-mile road trip to southwest Colorado, and I have a few things to get off my chest. I, I'll tell you, I really like driving. There's a lot of people who really like driving. I find it soothing. 
I find it comforting. Actually, in my older age, it, it does get a little bit more painful uh, in the backside and in my back. And, and I think it would help if I got out and moved around more than I had been. Anyway, I still enjoy it, even though I'm getting older. Uh, nothing like the scenery and the wide open spaces and imagining what those people who live out there in the in the boonies, if you will, or or out there in, in rural America, what, what they're doing, why they live there, how, how they're making it work, because it may, maybe it's just so much less stressful than, than a life in a different type of career like my career. Um, I, haven't you ever dreamed that while, while you're driving around a town, what it would be like to have, let's say, that business or, or start a, a tire shop or buy some land out, out in the middle of nowhere, maybe by a river somewhere, put a half a dozen cabins on it and then run that or, or some other kind of, of business where it just seems like life would slow down tremendously. It, it just, uh, my brain goes on overload in that way. And when I'm a road trip thinking when we, when we p- pass, you know, a small little town, what would it be like to live in this little town with just one safe way? What, what would I do for a living? What, what, what I, would I still have aspirations to, to do big things? Would I want to be mayor of the of a small town? Or would I want to just uh, hang out at a lo- local coffee shop or, or at, the, uh, at, at the diner most days? I don't know. Make, make life slow down to a sloth's pace. Seems like a simpler life to me. But, but they're probably thinking the same exact opposite thing, wanting to move to the big city and see what it's like to have every convenience within a five-minute walk or drive from them. I mean, don't we all as humans just, if we could, we, we just want the other thing, what we don't have, we just want that, and that would make us happy? It, it rarely ever works out that way, but I think as humans, naturally, that's what we just want. If we had that and, and what that guy has and, and, and that that life, then we would be so much happier. But but there's there, those people that are living that life that you think would be so, they are probably saying the same thing about you and your life. It's just, that's I think that's human nature, right? Anyway, I, I also think road trips are much more enjoyable at, at higher speeds. It, I understand it's supposed to be about the journey and not necessarily about the destination, but, but I like to get to the destination as quickly as I, as I can, and I can enjoy the scenery at 90 miles an hour. Now, in this case, we left Denver. We drove south on Interstate 25 to this little town called Walsenburg. It's south of Pueblo. Not a lot there. Nice little town. That is a town with one Safeway in it. Uh, maybe they had another grocery store. I didn't see one. I just saw the one Safeway. Uh, and then we went from there west to Alamosa, the town of Alamosa, where the uh, sand dunes, the great sand dunes are in the state of Colorado. And then uh, from there over uh, Wolf Creek Pass into the little town of Pagosa Springs. It's a little mountain town. They have several germ, uh, geothermal hot springs. And what happens is they have this mother spring, and it's allowed to flow down into a series of pools and that water then gets distributed to these other pools, and, and it cools down along the way from, I, I think it's 140 degrees when it comes out of the ground, and it goes to, uh, I think they have pools that are uh, over 110, maybe 115, which seems pretty dangerous, but uh, it, it's it, the people were in it. Uh, they have some that are like 110, 100 degrees, 105, somewhere like 90 degrees. I think the uh, main pool was 87. They have a big pool there. And then it flows out into the San Juan River, and, and the cold 
uh, I mean, the, the river is, is cold. It's, it's 50 degrees at best in the San Juan river. And they have this area there where, the, where you have some stairs coming down from the, uh, all the, they have like 20 different hot spring little pools. And then you can take these stairs and you'll plunge into the icy surface, if you will. And then you want to immediately jump back out of that uh, cold river water and back into a warm pool. Um, it's a lot different than the one in uh, Mount Princeton, where they actually have uh, hot springs that do, uh, again, flow into the river there. But when you're in the river, there's actually some of the warm water coming up from the riverbed. So you can sit in the river and get some of the cooler water, but you're also getting the warm water from the riverbed. Uh, and if you actually dig down a little bit, it gets quite hot. It's uh, quite interesting, completely different scenario. Uh, anyway, it's always a good time to go to hot springs like that. The next day, uh, went from there to uh, through Farmington, New Mexico, through the Navajo Nation, uh, stopped at the Four Corners. That Na- the Navajo Nation, by the way. This is we're talking extreme northeast, uh, northwestern um, New Mexico, and it is wide open. I mean, there there are space where it's nothing out there, and I couldn't. This was during the day. We're driving during the day, and you're looking. You don't really see a whole lot of anything. Few cars would pass us going the other direction, uh, and and I can't imagine what it would be like at night. How dark and and if you had a car problem and you're just gonna be out there with the coyotes and the tarantulas and the and the scorpions, I guess. Anyway, go all the way up to uh, the Four Corners. Eight bucks a person, by the way, to get into the Four Corners. It, it is on the Navajo Nation uh, property, so the Navajo Nation. Uh, charges people to come into the four corners where New Mexico and Colorado and Utah and Arizona all meet at one spot. They charge eight bucks a person unless you're two and then you can get in for free. Um, <laughs> eight bucks. All right. So we saw that and you know, you're there for 10 minutes. Uh, you know, well, I guess we were there for like a half an hour. And then they have vendors uh, from the Navajo Nation who are selling their jewelry and they have uh, little arrowheads and some have some artwork and that sort of thing. Uh, it was a little bit, that, that was that was kind of neat. Uh, then, then we drove from there into Mesa Verde National Park where they have these quiff, cliff dwellings. Uh, it is really, really cool. Basically, what the Pueblo Indians did, they, they went down into these cliff areas these uh, th- that were dug out of the, naturally dug out of this, like a, almost like a cave, but huge. And they would build a little town or, you know, a little village, if you will, uh, in these cave areas, um, these cliffs. It was just really fascinating. And you get to crawl around a little bit in there and go up close and personal and see it is, it, it really is cool. And we stayed in the park that night, it was so dark, so neat. Uh, to you know, you tour the dwellings, you get to stay there in the park where it's just you're you're away from all the city lights, and you get to see a million stars. Pretty interesting stuff. All right, so then from there to Telluride from Cortez, Colorado, stopped at this little sandwich shop called Once Upon a Sandwich. Super nice older couple who runs this thing. That, that's another thing right there. You could run a sandwich shop in a little town like Cortez. And, uh, and, and you can, it, it was so <laughs> funny because the guy, he says, all right, well, cause I, there was really nothing in the menu I really liked. And I said, I just kind of want a turkey sandwich with, you know, just some tomatoes. And so he goes, all right, what, what, what kind of, you want this and this and this, and because it's his shop, he can make whatever he wants. It's just a little diner, if you will. And they're only open for breakfast and lunch. 
And then he had this uh, green chili stew, basically, with green chili base, and they had some other vegetables in there. And and I gave a little bit to my daughter, and so she basically ate my whole thing. And so he said, oh, yeah, that's a, here. He gave me another bowl of soup just on the house. So super nice couple who who run that thing, and it, that, that, that was nice to see there's still good in the world and good people out there and generous people. Uh, then from there to Telluride, what a remote place. It really is. It's There's only one way in and out of Telluride, unless you have a Jeep. And then you can go up the Jeep trail, which I did one time years and years and years ago. But it is, it's pretty remote, pretty nice little uh, town, Telluride. Uh, and it's such a beautiful drive. The next day, longest driving day to the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Just imagine it's a mini Grand Canyon. And it's it's hard to describe it. And it you'll, you might see pictures, look up uh, Black Canyon of the Gunnison. And the cliff walls are so straight down, and the, the canyon is narrow, and it's it's deep. And the the Gunnison River is down there. It is really, really a cool place. Remarkable. You'd never know it was there unless you just basically <laughs> drove right up to it and drove into it. Uh, and then from there to the to the city of Gunnison to Salida, Buena Vista, over to Woodland Park. We had a baton competition on that Sunday. And then uh, back back home here to uh, the south side of Metro Denver. And let me say this about the road trip. There is something, I think, that happens to people when they're driving. And when someone else wants to pass them, there's a n- not only a physical block, but a mental block that allows uh, the passe to be offended that the passer wants to get past them routinely I would try to pass somebody and they would immediately speed up not just on a two lane where it's a two lane road where you have the dash lines and you can pass somebody routinely they would speed up so let's say the speed limit's 55 and uh, then I try to pass them because they're going 55 and maybe I want to go 60 and they start speeding up it really is astounding how many times that happens. There's also these special passing areas in our Colorado mountains where they'll put in two lanes. Usually it's one lane each direction, but then they'll have these passing areas. And for about a mile or so, they'll have two lanes. So it lets the slower traffic get over to the right lane, keep going slow. Usually it's for semis and campers and RVs and any kind of truck that might be going a little bit slower, but any kind of passenger vehicle could also be going a little bit slower and, and faster traffic wants to get past it, right? So there's these special passing areas where where they put these two lanes in. And routinely, I would be following somebody for miles going, let's say, 55 in a 60, and or, or even 60 in a 55, and I want to go maybe a little bit faster, As soon as we hit this passing zone, without fail, they would speed up to like 70 as I'm trying to pass them. Why do they do that? Why? Why do they feel like uh, they feel like they should be speeding up and not let me pass just to hold me back? Because is it because the road feels wider and they feel like they're more comfortable and and they can then go a little bit faster in this two lane area, knowing that it's going to end? Knowing that they've been a slow driver, maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't care. 
Maybe that's what it is. They just don't care and they don't want anyone to pass them and it is their responsibility to keep all traffic behind them. They are the arbiter of all things traffic speeds and must keep the flow at their per, uh, uh, perceived uh, safe speed. Is it because they just don't want anyone to go faster than them or faster than the speed limit? Are they now the uh, Gomer Pyle citizens arrest state patrol uh, auxiliary police? <laughs> you know what? What is it? Why is it? Why every time, every time it was, it was nearly every time with different drivers I come up to the passing zone area and I start accelerating. They get over to the right lane and speed up so I can barely get past them. They don't keep their same speed, which they should. They speed up. It, one of the drivers actually seemed to try to race me to the point where the two lanes merge back into one and then the driver slowed down again so I, I couldn't get past him a second time. I just don't understand. It was just so infuriating. If you drive, it's fine if you want to drive the speed limit or maybe a couple over. Fine, get over to the right. And if so, if I want to drive faster, that's my responsibility. If the state patrol catches me, then that's on me. If I get into a wreck and go over a, around a curve a little bit too fast and roll the truck and 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 I uh, get seriously hurt, that's on me. Me. Not you. You are not the grand poobah of uh, speed enforcement and, and and road etiquette. You should move over. It was without fail, and it was infuriating. Oh, my goodness. It was just infuriating. I mean, I, I just don't get what it's all about. So frustrating. Uh, you know, dri <laughs> drive how you want to drive. Let me drive how I want to drive. And if you don't like it, call the state patrol and report me. And they can, you know, the, the man with the the, the nice uh, sh flat rimmed hat and, uh, and and sidearm. They can they can speak to me, uh, and and then decide what what they want to do. Not you. <sighs> anyway, if you know what I'm, I was talking to somebody else about. Uh, I I took all my because I have a dash cam right. And I have shown dash cam videos in the past. I took all the dash cam video from the entire road trip and I put it together all five days and I squeezed it all in a time lapse that runs at about 45 minutes of the entire adventure. And actually, it's pretty entertaining to watch. I, you know what? I think I'm going to put it on my Facebook page here. Uh, so it's called Jason Luber Traffic Guy. I believe my Facebook page is in the uh, description of this show. Uh, I'm sure it is. Uh, yeah, you just click on the, it, there's a link right there to Facebook, Jason Luber Traffic Guy, in the description of the show, and it takes you to my Facebook page, and boom, you can uh, see this, just go back a couple maybe, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, and you can see the entire uh, time lapse of my road trip going through southwestern Colorado, so... It's pretty fun. It's pretty interesting to watch, <laughs> all things uh, being said. Uh, and, and speaking of the Colorado State Patrol, and really any State Patrol, I got this uh, question into the Driving You Crazy mailbag. And you can, of course, write me a question if you like. And it was Mary from Lakewood, Colorado, who wrote to me saying, What's driving you crazy? Hi, Jason. I remember a time not that long ago that you could report bad driving to the Colorado State Patrol 
and they would result it would result in a letter being sent to the perpetrator. If a perpetrator received three letters of reported bad driving, the police would pay them a visit. Is this still happening? And if so, how do you report a bad driver? Well, Mary, yeah, it's it's not only still happening. The the state patrol is actually encouraging you to report bad drivers. Now, what you do is the it's called Star CSP Aggressive Driver Program. Basically, the star on your cell phone, you hit the star button, which is that button on the bottom left, under the seven, and to the left of the zero, the star, and then the letter CSP, which is also 277. I think most states have something similar to this. Now, the one in Colorado started on July 1st, 1998, and back then... The Colorado State Patrol, they partnered with several cellular companies to provide that special number, and it allows anybody to report in real time, free of charge, because remember back then, you had certain charges for every minute that you would be on your cell phone, daytime, nighttime. Remember when you would have free nighttime minutes, and you would wait till 7 o'clock to start calling people? Because it was it was free, and it didn't come off your, your minute allowance on your phone? Uh, anyway, they, <laughs> they, uh, that back then, you know, you would get charged for, for your calling on your phone. So this would be free of charge and you can report any bad driving behavior on the roadways. And since the program has started, the, uh, state patrol has received more than 250,000 reports of aggressive driving. And they tell me some examples of aggressive driving are uh, regular moving violations that they say put other motorists at work at risk, like improper lane changes, uh, following too closely, weaving, uh, passing on the right shoulder when you shouldn't be driving on that part of the highway, uh, speeding, excessive speeding, impaired driving, or otherwise dangerous driving. Now, when any one of the hundreds of people who dial that star CSP or 277 number every day across the state, they get connected to a dispatch center. And the dispatcher there will ask that reporting person to give the exact location of where they are, what road they're on, and the direction they're going, a description of the vehicle of the bad driver, and the manner in which the vehicle is being driven. And then the dispatcher is going to remind you not to attempt to follow or pursue the offending uh, driver. Just uh, call it in and let the state patrol Handle it. Now, the State Patrol told me if someone sees an aggressive driver that they say is putting others at risk, that aggressive driver should be avoided by getting out of the way, don't make eye contact, give any indication of disapproval of their driving behavior. Uh, (laughs) Maybe I should point out, get over to the right lane and and don't try to race them in a passing zone. Then when you uh, call the Star 277, Uh, As soon as as safely as as possible, be prepared to provide that information about the description, the license plate number, where you're going, and that uh, behavior that's happening. Now, for your specific question, Mary, about sending a letter to a repeat violator, the three complaints equal a letter program, it was put on hold at the end of 2017, but Trooper Josh Lewis with the State Patrol tells me, even though that program is no longer officially in place... He says troopers might still pay a visit to a registered owner of a vehicle if they are called multiple times about this same vehicle. And he says it does still happen on occasion. Now, the issue here is that a registered owner of the vehicle is not always the driver of the vehicle. And that way, they they can't just write a ticket or a citation 
to the vehicle owner based on phone calls because they don't know exactly who is driving that car. It could be a stolen vehicle, and you, you're going to send a ticket to the owner. Well, th- maybe the car was stolen. Uh, maybe it was grandma who was driving. Uh, maybe it was the kid who was driving. Maybe it was somebody, whoever. But it, they would have to have a witness willing to go to court and testify about who the driver was and what behavior was being exhibited, and then the uh, then they could at least take that person to court. Or a trooper would have to observe that behavior, uh, and then they could write a, a citation. But there are very few people, as the troopers were telling me, that are willing to go to court and testify against some other driver. So what happens now, after multiple calls about a specific driver or a problem area... The state patrol figures, well, if that person is in that area often and at the same time, what they do is they record where it's happening, about the time, and they let the area commander know what's going on, and then they send, or at least hang out, troopers uh, in that area at those times to see if they can find that driver and maybe watch for the uh, dangerous driving. And so if they see it, they could pull somebody over and give them a ticket, and then you don't have to worry about getting a witness to go to court. Well, and then they tell me they highly encourage anybody observing uh, dangerous driving to contact them, uh, star 277, again, is that number. And I'm sure it's different in a lot of states, but I think most states have that same program. Uh, I got another question from a viewer. It was Michael from Parker, Colorado, who wrote to me saying, What's driving you crazy? If you're in the outside lane of a double right turn... Can you turn on red after a stop, or is it only legal from the inside right turn lane to turn right on red after a stop? I've seen them around town, but I know one when you're entering Southlands Mall in front of the bookstore and when you're trying to get back to Smoky Hill. Well, no, no those types of double right t- uh, turns, uh, Michael, they are unusual, but here's how they work. They work just like a single right turn. So if you have a right turn lane, you'd go right after you stop at the light. You make a full stop, make sure no pedestrians are present, and you turn right. If there are two right turn lanes, unless there's a sign that specifically prohibits you from doing it, each one of those right turn lanes acts as its own right turn lane. It's legal and proper to make a a right on red from either the right hand or the left hand right turn lane. Now, each driver needs to come to a full stop, like I said, make sure that You can make the turn safely from either of the right turn lanes, and then you can legally do it. But but even though that double right is allowed, my guess is most drivers don't know this, so don't be surprised to sit behind somebody in the left side right turn lane when the light is red. Uh, And also be aware that the driver in a lane you might be turning into might not know this rule either. And so they could be confused by that right turn into the left lane because if, say, there's two right turn lanes, your rightmost right turn lane goes into the right lane, your leftmost right turn lane goes into either a center or a left lane, uh, depending on if it's a two- or three-lane road, and that driver that might be coming towards you that has the right-of-way might be confused by it and just, uh, you know, just beware of of that issue. Um, By the way, even the double right turn, even though it's legal, it's not required. I did cover that in a separate story where, yeah, you you can turn right on red, 
but you don't necessarily have to turn right on red. It frustrates a lot of people, but it's not the law where you have to turn right on red. Now, by the way, when you make a right on red from the left right turn lane, make sure to turn into the same lane on the next road. So let's say it's a two lane road that you're going to be turning onto, then you should turn into the left lane from the left right turn lane. If you're turning into a three lane road, you would then turn into the middle lane of the new road. And of course, this is a double right rule. It's allowed in Colorado. It might not be allowed in other states. So just check with your local state and make sure it's okay for your area. Yay! <laughs> All right, so there's, there's that question. And the last question into the mailbag was from Bob from Boulder, Colorado, who wrote to me saying, What's driving you crazy driving around town, especially at night, while stopped at traffic signals? I've noticed on the pole a blue light. What are those for? Well, those blue lights, Bob, are called a confirmation light. Sometimes they're called a red light indicator, and they're used by law enforcement to know when the traffic light on the other side of the signal is red so they can watch for red light violators at a safe place because the light is high up in the air. When that confirmation light turns on, it's visible basically from every intersection approach, and that light comes in several colors, but blue and clear are the most popular ones. Now, I talked with a traffic signal technician, and his name is Joseph Grivalda, and he, and he provided video for my story. He calls himself TikTok and Instagram's most famous signal technician. <laughs> now, during his work day, Joseph records and narrates over dozens of very interesting videos. He has a social media channel called Over the Road, and I have links to this in my Driving You Crazy series of uh, news stories, so you can see it there on denver7.com. And you click on the left side menu, go down to Denver 7 Traffic, and click the plus button, and that gets you to Driving You Crazy, all the, all the traffic stories I've done. Now, on his social media channels, he's shown not only the confirmation, how to change a light in the confirmation light, but also how tall a traffic signals are are, and, and how, how cities count vehicles that pass through the intersections. Now, Joseph tells me that these confirmation lights, they're mounted behind or sometimes on top of a signal mast arm. That's that pole, that long pole that hangs over the street where all the equipment, including the traffic signals, are attached. Now, the confirmation light, it's wired in with that red signal light with the circuit, and it allows it to simultaneously come on with the red. So it means only one officer is needed to monitor the red light and red light runners for all four directions of an intersection. Even if he can't physically see the red signal from the safe spot, they can still monitor who is running a red light because of that confirmation light. Now, I talked to Boulder's Transportation and Mobility Department. They tell me Without this supplemental indicator, it's difficult for an officer to safely enforce red light running violations uh, because they can't always park in a safe spot and see all the red light runners. The state of Minnesota installed many of these lights. They say the combination of confirmation lights and some extra enforcement has reduced the number of red light violators in, in their state. But one of their concerns was the possibility of increasing the number of rear-end crashes as a result of drivers making a greater effort to stop at the red light, similarly to what happens at intersections with a red light camera. 
Now, it doesn't seem that there's any indication, at least that I found, or from the literary, uh, the, the literature uh, from the state of Minnesota that I read through, that that is the case with these confirmation lights. And Minnesota added in that, uh, lit- in that uh, literature that I was reading that the low cost of these lights allows them to be installed in problematic intersections, therefore, therefore uh, increasing enforcement, enforcement efficiency. Now, Grijalva... Now, Joseph tells me in his TikTok video of him changing the light bulb in that confirmation light, it was his most viral video. It's had like 15 million views in about five or, five or so months. He says the installation and maintenance of those lights is fairly straightforward as long as you're not afraid of heights. And surprisingly enough, the bulb is just a normal LED bulb that you would find in almost any store. And <laughs> so... So there you go, and you can see all the links to uh, you know the videos that I have from Joseph and and that story itself on uh, my on the website denver7.com, uh, and it's driving you crazy is the uh, webpage there, and you can see all the information right there. By the way, that story when I ran it on TV and then I ran the web story, it was the number one story on our website for two days in a row, and the top five story the third day. So quite a run for uh, for that story. If you have a story idea or a question, comment, concern, you can always call the listener hotline 303-832-0217. Or you could always drop me a line on any of the contact links in the description of the show. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Loop with the Traffic Guy. Be safe and as always, happy motoring. <laughs>